0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is the next frontier in food logistics with my friend Alexis Mazel Pleasant. Alexis is managing editor at both Food Logistics Magazine and also Supply and Demand Chain Executive Magazine. Food Logistics Magazine is the only magazine exclusively dedicated to covering the cold food and beverage sector, so they understand their food logistics biz. Also in the interview, we discussed the Women in Supply Chain Forum, which is scheduled for November 14th and 15th in Atlanta, Georgia. I think we may have given the wrong date, uh, Lexus's organization is also responsible for that women in supply chain forum. And it is November 14th and 15th in Atlanta, Georgia. We put a link to that in the show notes if you want to get down there, and you should get down there. But before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Port X Logistics. Port X Logistics is an asset based transportation company, and they specialize in containerized freight. So if you're having trouble moving your cargo out of the port, very common problem then reach out to my friends over at port X Logistics, and their website is PortXLogistics.com. They're experienced, and they offer service at every single port and every single rail ramp in the United States and Canada. They have a, an approach that is guided by their four pillars, which is culture, service, tech, and trucks. Again, check them out over at PortXLogistics.com. So how's it going, Alexis?
1: It's going great, Joe. How are you?
0: Doing very well, doing very well. So Alexis, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today.
1: Sure. So my name is Alexis Mizell-Pleasant. I am Managing Editor here at Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. I hail out of Charleston, South Carolina. Food Logistics is a B2B publication covering food and beverage supply chain from Food manufacturers to retailers distributors and food service providers we publish print six times a year and then kind of sprinkled throughout the year we do things like contributed content podcasts uh, webinars things like that we also have a host of awards including tech awards top cold storage and 3pl awards people awards like our rock stars and our women in supply chain awards um, on the other side the- and demand chain executive covers the entire global supply chain. We focus on ROI, professional development and management, and we're strictly an e-magazine online. And then we do the same kind of sprinkled in of contributed content, webinars and such like that. We also have a few different awards, including a top supply chain projects award. And then we share that women in supply chain award with uh, food logistics.
0: Very nice, very nice. So I know uh, you covered a lot of ground there, but we I definitely know you have this women, women and supply chain thing. We'll talk we'll touch on that a little more. I want to definitely talk more about food logistics because that is, we talked before we hit record. Food logistics, there's a higher bar because it is food. There's the there's a lot of Fed regs that we have to worry about. But beyond Fed regs, every company that's selling food wants you to be very safe with it. It's different than, you know, the the packs the pens or whatever you're sending right these we're eating this stuff and then you must mention supply and demand chain executive and that is you said that covers everything outside of food logistics
1: right everything that's supply chain but doesn't have to do with food and bev so it's, it
0: sounds like it sounds like the the food logistics is one of the one of the flagship uh things so we'll talk about that today Sure. so Alexis, before we get into it, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you join Food Logistics.
1: Okay, it is, it is very diverse. So I am born and raised here in Charleston, South Carolina. Right after high school, I was one of those people that joined the military and said, yep, this is what I'm going to do. I served in the Navy as a nuclear engineer on uh, aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan. After that, I decided to use that good old GI Bill that they offer us and go to school. I got a undergrad degree from the Citadel Military College of South Carolina. I have a degree in English. And then after that I got my masters in communications from John Hopkins. Going into the workforce in wow. this section, I pretty much started out just doing freelance and kind of working my way into journalism. I uh, wrote for a few different medical journals, like the Medical Journal or of South Carolina at the Medical University. And then I've worked as content creation for self-publishing at Amazon. And then most recently before my role here, uh, I worked as a marketing manager for a local nonprofit. So I'm new to supply chain and logistics, but not unaware of supply chain and logistics. And it's, it's just as much interesting as the military was for me.
0: Yep. I, I told you this before we hit record and I know it to be true. When you write about a topic and I know you write about food logistics, among other things, you just become more knowledgeable than you would in a regular job. And I, I mean, cause you could, I'm not saying it happens, but you could have a job where you're a clerk somewhere in logistics and you like oh i process blank every day and i i you know i'm i'm like a machine i don't get to know the whole industry i don't have insights on the industry i just i go and i show up and so you get years experience where it's very focused and i'm not putting anybody down i'm not putting the work down but when you're writing you have no choice but to learn a lot about what's going on in the industry so I've noticed that. So it's the same with consultants. A lot of times when you're a consultant, you could be very young, but have a lot of knowledge just because you keep being dragged into the next problem area in that space.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they say, you know, when you write things down, you you learn at double the speed. So it's just a natural progression of writing about, you know, whatever it is, whether it be supply chain and logistics or something else, it's going to automatically kind of take up a space. and in your brain so and and it's always changing and always interesting
0: yep by the way before I forget Charleston South Carolina is one of my very favorite cities I love it there just the I think it's the most historic city in America I think it has more historic buildings than any city in America Yeah. I think it's one of the first colonies if not the first colony right from England yeah
1: I wish I knew I, I don't know if
0: you're allowed to say colony anymore <laughs>
1: I wish I knew more of the- (laughs) And
0: and that's where the Civil War started?
1: Yep. I wish I knew more of the background because I'd love to give you more details. But it's funny every time I say Charleston, one, people say I say it funny. And two, I'm always shocked that everyone's been here. I don't know why in my brain I think that no one's been here. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I love it there.
0: Love it there. Love it there. And I do remember, yeah, I was a tourist there. So unlike you, you don't go to the tourist stuff. But I remember them saying we have more historic buildings than Boston, which is a much bigger city. Unbelievable. Beautiful place. Fun place. Anyway, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the next frontier in food logistics. And before we get into the next frontier, let's talk a little bit about why food logistics is little harder than regular logistics so i i know we have a whole bunch of regulations that we have to deal with but alexis tell us why food logistics is the higher bar for that industry
1: well like you mentioned when we first got on food has a specific not just the regulations as far as from the government but just being that it's a perishable you have to take special considerations especially when you're moving it from different places, whether that be like a long haul, if you're practicing something like nearshoring, and you're coming from a different location, they could also have different regulations that they put on their food and bev that maybe don't meet the same requirements that we do here in the US, or maybe they differ in some way. So being keen and, and being mindful of those things is, is obviously a, a big part of why food is maybe a little bit more important. I don't want to say it's more important than, than, you know, a pack of pins, but you know, it's, it's definitely doing something different and requires a different nuance.
0: You're eating at some point. Right. And, and I don't know, it was probably five, seven years ago, we had the food safety modernization hit food safety modernization act, which is F S M a FISMA. I heard people say it sometimes, but it was the first overhaul of the FDA in the first. In, I think FDA seventy years old. It was the first overhaul, and I think the focus was on. The rest of industry kind of has this idea of process, right? We're going to we're going to develop a process. We're going to follow that process, and if we follow that process, the out the output the outcome will be okay. The FDA still had kind of an inspection mindset, which was we don't know about anything about the process. We just inspect not as good. So they realized we need to upgrade. So they did have this big upgrade. And I told you, Alexis, I did a lot of training. I used to do a lot of training for logistics and supply chain companies. And I remember I did tons of that FDA uh, Food Safety Modernization Act stuff. And we do have perishables, So when you talk about foodborne illness, it happens with certain foods and it's going to be the perishables. It's going to be produce. So produce has the higher bar for that. It's also going to be meats, poultry, anything like that. Anything also that has to be mixed, anything that goes in one of those tankers. Right. We have to worry cuz somebody could put a drop of poison into that and all of a sudden we have you know a tanker full of beverage being distributed all over the place. So we wanted to make sure we didn't have these foodborne illnesses and We've been very lucky. <laughs> Better yet, I'll say we've been very good and lucky. But if you don't trust the food that you get from the grocery store, it changes everything. Our whole economy, we saw what happened during the pandemic, how quickly our world just stopped when we couldn't go out, when we when the restaurants we went to weren't open, when we couldn't go to the job, when, God forbid, when the kids couldn't go to school, everything just shut down. The same thing would happen if we had a problem with our food, food supply. We've been spoiled by how good it works. And part of that is because we do have not only the fed regs that say you have to do it right, but I think most companies say we will exceed the fed reg. That is just the guideline. That's the starting point for us. We are not, we are not looking to poison anybody, right? And we don't want our, we don't, yeah, we don't want anybody getting our food. And by the way, think about it. Think about a product that you might buy that gets contaminated and they find it's contaminated in one location. You don't buy it. I think we had that with some pain medication years ago. Like, I don't want to mention any names, but somebody somebody tampered with pain medications. And years people wouldn't buy that product because you're like, oh, no, they might have something in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It puts a it. puts. It puts some hesitation on, you know, the product and and it could be something like, you know, an apple, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you think wouldn't, you know, you have those, those buzz items in your head where you're thinking, this is always like this. And when I buy it, it's always going to be like this, but you have to think about the background, how that item got from point A to point B, and is now going into your body and into your home.
0: Right. And by the way, I've said this before on my podcast, and I'll say it again. We are getting very demanding about our food. So your grandparents or my grandparents, were like, cool, we got enough food to eat. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We are eating today. No one said, is, is that grandma, is that food ethically grown and sourced because I don't want to eat it. If that cow had a bad life, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, we care a lot more now, and if you look, people care about—they're vegans, they're vegetarians, they're pescatarians. Also, there's a lot of people just say, "I want my food ethically sourced. I want my—I want to know that the eggs that I eat, those chickens are living a great life while they lay these eggs." So the bar on that is growing, getting harder, and harder for food companies, and so again, they're—they're they're looking to be able to prove to their customers from. The beginning till the time it's on your plate, from farm to fork, this was done perfectly, and that's a super high bar. Absolutely. Yeah, I said, I said this before. One time, I was at the grocery store when one of my daughters was in high school, and she's looking at these blueberries, and she kept taking her phone and trying to scan the barcode. I go, "What are you doing?" She's like, "I'm scanning this barcode." I go, "For what?" She goes. I want to see where these were grown. I go, that's that's not how that works. And she goes, What do you mean? She goes, I want to scan that barcode. I want to know where my these blueberries were grown. I said, That that won't do that. She goes, Well, it should. And I was like, Yeah, it should. Yeah. I should be able to see the chain of custody. Where was this grown? And when when did it get plucked? When did it go into the cooling center, cooling process? And when it was it shipped from where to where? And how old is it? Right, and I'm thinking, yeah, she's she's 30 years old now, so she's probably saying, "Damn it, I want it. It's time." <laughs> but oh. the bar has just gotten very high for food. It's always been high, but anyway, the, I want to talk a little bit about these next frontier in logistics. I think one of the things I just talked about is is probably one of those. Is the bar is getting ever higher? Nobody's saying, "I don't care where my food comes from." I keep thinking, I grew up. Eating bologna sandwiches and potato chips for lunch. And that was like part of a healthy meal because it had an apple with it too. Nobody's looking at it that way anymore. Everyone's right. like, What do you mean you gave your kid a bologna sandwich? That's child abuse. <laughs>
1: right. And having that that visibility aspect is is a huge thing. And that's why all you know, data has become so much more important in these fields especially when it comes to supply chain. And as you said, tracking food from, from start to finish and being able to see, okay, where was it processed? Where did it come from? What grocery store is it going to now? And as you said, demand for this information, even from like the customer perspective, like you mentioned your daughter, as an example, you know, it's, it's, not just wanting to know, oh, where did this blueberry come from, but figuring out exactly the process it went through to, to end up on your plate, you know, what pesticides were used and, and what, where was it grown and, and what kind of regulations do they have? And I, when I first touched on it, I mentioned how the U.S. might have, you know, different rules for X, Y, and Z food that, you know, a, a different place does and understanding that, is coming down to the everyday consumer, you and me walking into the grocery store.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get to that because I think that's an important one. So we want to talk about the next frontier. And again, I think one of the things, is first one we'll just say is the bar's getting higher and higher with consumers. The Food Safety Modernization Act, I think everybody's meeting and probably exceeding that, but the customers, what they're demanding, and I think the food companies, the, the supermarkets just want the want, Want, they want to make everybody happy, and we are we are a picky group these days. But uh, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, and we talked a little bit before we hit record, was nearshoring. Talk a little bit about nearshoring and why that's important in the food biz.
1: Sure. Well, it's important for a variety of reasons. You know, today, especially with the current economy, people are trying to find ways to maybe cut costs, maybe bring things a little bit closer to home. Mexico is becoming, it's already been, uh, a large resource for nearshoring. And having that opportunity not only cut costs, but also maybe brings a little bit more of that awareness aspect to us because we are a closer in geographic location and then maybe a little bit closer in our customs and just our livelihood. So that's really the piece that I think a lot of people, and that's why it's becoming such a, a hype ticket item, if you will, kind of like a buzzword that's going around right now, that people are having more interest in either pursuing something like that or maybe restructuring what they're doing now to focus on different locations and how that might better improve what they're doing, whether that's from a financial aspect.
0: Right. So I think, you know, when we talk about nearshoring, that's the stuff that we outsource a lot of stuff to Asia, some to Europe, but some to India and africa other places but most of it was going to asia and i think the majority of that was going to china and um now we have some tariffs against china and um we are also realizing we realized during the pandemic that it's not that that's, it's not necessarily good to have a long supply chain when it's stuck on the ocean and can't get it through the ports so companies are moving stuff but also we want fresh stuff right we all we all want fresh stuff and um obviously nothing fresh can come from China. Right? It all has to be kind of packaged over there. Right. It's kind of famous. I used to see it on LinkedIn all the time. I think it was for peaches, peaches that were grown in Chile or somewhere like that, shipped to Thailand to be packaged in those little fruit pack, snack pack things, mm-hmm. and then shipped to the US for consumption. And you're like, wait a sec, we grow peaches here. <laughs> like, and it kind of makes you think oh, okay I'm, snack packs are good right but you're like does it really have to go through that and i think i think more and more parents you are got you've got little ones at home are are concerning themselves with their food supply chain and saying does my my food really have to go to asia to be packaged <laughs> can it be packaged in georgia they have peaches there
1: <laughs> right and also the aspect that you you talked about just because of the pandemic, you know, we love to say because of the pandemic, now we're so much more aware. But it really is true in, in this capacity where your you're, maybe your only option is to order something that is going to come from a different place. But maybe we can bring that closer where if there is another disruption, it's not so much of a disruption. You know, maybe I, I don't get it the next day, but I get it the next day. And taking that into consideration as a piece. um, use nearshoring.
0: Yep. And when we talk about China in particular, China has is the fastest aging country in the history of the world. They had that one child policy and it did the trick in some regards, but um, now they're paying for it because they don't have a a low cost labor force because low cost labor forces tend to be young. And if you don't have young people, and I heard some of the geopolitical guy Peter Zion say it takes literally 30 years to create a 30 year old. You can't do it. There's no way to accelerate that. Of course, people might say robotics, some other stuff, but ultimately we are going to do less business with China. Also, there is some saber rattling uh, in, in, in and we put some tariffs against uh, China because of intellectual property and other issues. There is the 30 days away problem with it. So moving to Latin America, which we do understand Latin America, they are lower cost. And with China is not the low cost country anymore. They are not low cost in any space right now. What they do have is the factories are built there right now. And it's not easy to open a new factory uh, and get people trained, get those uh, supply chains running. But we are slowly, but surely seeing some changes to that. So we're going to move from I think we'll see stuff moving out of China. Of course, it could move to Malaysia or Thailand or Korea, but I think we'll also see a lot move into Latin America. And I think with food, it just makes sense because my food should not be traveling around the world. I just want it to be grown relatively close to my house. And By the way, when I was a lean guy, we used to say, we used to circle anything that did not add value. And we would circle transportation, and there and I know people are probably saying, "What the hell are you talking about? No one will pay extra because my food traveled. No one in fact, it's the opposite. You are more likely to pay extra for food that was grown in your county or in your city, and when you go to a farm to fork restaurant or a farm market, you're pay extra sometimes because It came right from the farm that I drive past on my way to work. That's why I want it. I will pay extra for that.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: So that's bad news for us logistics guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and there becomes an ethical portion of that too, as far as when you're considering, you know, where things are made, not just based on the food, but also who's behind, you know, producing this or getting it. Wherever it needs to be, when you talk about places like China and other places that again might not have the same rules and regulations as we do, uh, things look a little bit different there, and consumers becoming more aware of not just the food but also the people behind it and how how are those people doing it, and what are what are those people doing, and who are they? You know more and more we're becoming more personable with people trying to figure out who are these people that are getting me this product.
0: Right. And by the way, the Food Safety Modernization Act also addressed what was um, probably a long, ongoing problem. Twenty percent of the food we eat in the United States comes from outside the United States. And a lot of it was kind of under the radar as far as the uh, Food Safety Modernization, as as far as the FDA was concerned. So the Food Safety Modernization Act put some guardrails in place to say, let's make sure that the food that is coming into this country from outside of this country is the same quality, same, following the same high standards that we expect here in this country. And by the way, we have so many immigrants here; it's one of our strengths. But let's face it: if you're from, let's just say, China or Mexico or Vietnam, and you say, "I want a certain spice or a certain food that I can't get at my local Walmart or my local Meijer," I have to go to a farm mart- or go up to a specific rest or specific grocery store i want to make sure that's that's following the fda standards and again i'm i'm not a super big fed reg guy but on food i'm i'm put some guardrails up that's all i ask (laughs) oh yeah so the next thing i want to we talked a little bit about Food Safety Monetization Act. Of course, we talked a little bit about nearshoring and why we're do, why we're doing that. The next thing I want to talk about is workforce, and we we had a long conversation about this before we hit record. Alexis, is we have we have a workforce problem. We we want we want all these wonderful things that our supply chain provides, but it's hard to hire right now for certain jobs. No one wants to do the tough work that needs to be done. That's in the factories, in the warehouses, uh, the truck driving, dock workers. I mean, not that it applies to what we're talking about today, but waitressing. I told you my mom can't find someone to cut her grass and her number one son doesn't want to do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah.
0: So we have a workforce problem. Speak to that, please. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So we know it's everywhere. It's even in your yard. But in regards to supply chain, You know, I like to say that it's it's not necessarily I don't want to do it. It's I don't know about it. And we see that in a lot of sections when we talk about the younger generation coming up, you know, what what they're being marketed for their future might not necessarily be an understanding of what supply chain even is, what jobs are are encompassed by supply chain, where they could fit in. and I think there is a misconception there where, you know, they just automatically assume, oh, it's, it's a hard job. Nobody wants to work it, so I'm not going to work it either. But giving them the education and resources to really look into the opportunities there, whether it be pay or personal, and make that decision for themselves is really huge.
0: Yep, and I think we have to make those jobs, whether it be in a warehouse or... I I told you, but I I, I spent a lot of time in automotive assembly plants. And when I first started those jobs, all were very physically demanding. And some of them were very awkward jobs where people had to kneel all day or stand on their tiptoes and horrible, horrible work. And so you just, at the end of the day, you're exhausted, you're sweaty, you're dirty, maybe even hurt. Not anymore, if you go to an assembly plant now, They're still working, but there's a lot more of the machines doing the hard work and the humans doing the human work. We're seeing more and more use of conveyor belts and robots in our warehouses. We're trying, not doing a good job of making the truck driving jobs better. We got to get those people so they can go home every night. We have to be more respectful of their time so we're not having them sit in our parking lot for three hours while we figure out what we're going to load them with we we have a shortage in this workforce and i will say this we talk about technology on my podcast we talk about all these highfalutin ideas the foundation of this business is warehouses factories truck drivers people who are doing jobs that let's face it most of us don't want to do i think we also have to find a way to make a career path from there. So if I, if, if you say, Hey, go work in a warehouse, you're going to understand the business from the ground up and you're in that warehouse and you're using cool technology and you're not killing yourself physically. You're not walking 20 miles a day. Yeah, you're like, that's a good start. I'll do this.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and having the opportunities that we have now with the boom in technology where you, you take some of that pressure off, it does open up the space to say there's longevity because my body's not going to break down over time from doing those things like we mentioned repetitive movements all day long um in these demanding jobs still hard, still absolutely hard, no, just being
0: on your feet all day, yeah, yeah, <laughs>
1: I mean it's still absolutely hard, but we're in a good position now with technology that we're able to. Do both hand in hand, work work next to the robots and things that kind of increase efficiency for everyone, including the the man on the ground.
0: Excellent, excellent. So then, this is kind of kind of related. We want to talk a little bit about the next topic, it was women in supply chain. So speak to that.
1: Yes. So I feel very passionate about this topic.
0: I'll say, and I'll say logistics. So I don't want to say just supply. Right, chain.
1: <laughs> supply chain and logistics. Women everywhere. I feel very passionate about this because my time in the Navy, um, I was the only female working in my my space. I worked in the engine room. And from there, I kind of saw, you know, an idea that maybe society kind of cultivates that, you know, there are separate spaces where women should and shouldn't work, or maybe where they're not so much represented. Um, And I see the same type of thing in supply chain, because it is statistically a male-dominated space. And women are are not being taught that it's a, a viable option for them. You know, you don't often see the little girls thinking of oh, I could be a truck driver. You know, and I think it starts again at that education piece. You can lump in women with the younger generation to educate them and make them aware of the opportunities in logistics for them.
0: Yep, yep. I think we have we have a need, and um, we we have a need to uh, and and one of the challenges becomes, like we mentioned, truck driving. We'll talk about that for a second. Is I think mostly you'll find women more likely, obviously no, mostly more likely to be the caregivers at home. Maybe they have elderly parents, helping grandma. Um, maybe kids, and so a lot of women will say, "I don't want to be on the road. I don't want to be on the road." And then we've talked about before. We hit record. We still, it's not safe to be on the road sometimes, and that's we got to find if you have, if if you have to spend the night in a, a tr- your truck at some truck stop, I think it's got to be safe, and that's that's we have to figure out how to make. And by the way, we have to figure out also how do we get those guys home more, and if they have if they have to stay on the road, let it be safe and comfortable, but ideally, let's work it out so we have more. Guys getting home at night, and then and I think that, I think women are more likely to those through those jobs. And I think you'll see more women doing the last mile stuff, where they say, "Cool, I do last mile and I go home every night." Yeah, we need women, in, and it's not just in the truck driving job; it's in all logistics, all supply chain. Uh, there's lots of white collar jobs that we still lack women in. Also,
1: I think ultimately it comes down to mentorship and seeing these people in these positions and having a an open dialogue to talk about these things, especially between the genders as far as, you know, have maybe a, a female has a, a, a male mentor and then younger females that are coming into the space don't feel like they're just surrounded by a bunch of suits, you know? Because it can easily become that. that. And whether it is that or maybe it just feels like that is is personal, but, but having mentorship really can provide a different there and even from just a perspective point of view
0: right you know it's 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 interesting i you hear always, always if you look at magazines like yours they always say you need to get a mentor and i was like well, i've never really had a mentor where it was like a formal re-, re i had a boss that you know maybe helped me out and then when i went to the next company and another boss some help you out some don't sometimes you know people who you talk to and i feel like it's So informal that it's almost not a thing. Right. And yet, if it always says, if you want to get to the C-suite, you need a mentor. You're like, well, who's going to assign one? And by the way, right now, if, if you were going to mentor someone and you were in a large organization, you're like, I don't want to mentor just anyone. I want to mentor someone who's on their way up, who has a lot of opportunities, who I think is really smart and really good. That's so. That's so. You have everybody wants to mentor that guy or that gal, yeah. And the people who are like struggling to get in the business, less so. And so I always say we all have to open ourselves. I I took a phone call on Sunday about this. Somebody said, "Hey, I'm working a warehouse, and I want to expand my knowledge and." I eventually want to own my own warehousing company. I was like, "All right," so listen to my podcast. There's a whole bunch of good podcasts to listen to, but I, I, I think we all have to be open to help people get into this space who are trying to get, you know, do well by themselves. And,
1: and there might be a misconception that it is only for the higher rankings, you know. But at the end of the day, anyone breaking into working in a new environment, whether you're a, a female or male, you know, you could do with someone who knows the ins and outs and can dedicate time and energy and effort to helping support you through that change. And that's really the key aspect to mentorship. I don't necessarily think it has to be an up or down, you know, climbing the ladder sort of thing. It can be in some aspects if that's, if that's the route you want to take, but it can also be as simple as, you know, you and me having a discussion that improves upon my knowledge in the space.
0: Yep. I think also, I do have two daughters. I don't have any sons, so I don't have this that these thoughts about men, but I am one, so I get it. <laughs> I think we're going to see in the next 20 years, I think we'll see it much drastic changes in the way that we work. We see more work at home, more remote. That is so great. Just even being casually dressed and working from home, I Guys, I used to punch a clock and wear a suit to work, <laughs> like <laughs> like in the olden days. And we started at six o'clock. Six AM. I remember having six AM meetings. Sounds ridiculous now, but that's how automotive was. But I think we're gonna start to say, why are we working 40 hours a week? Is there a is there a track where I can work three days a week? Is there a work track where I can work 36 hours or and I think older people? not just women, men too. We're going to need them. The baby boomers, and I'm one of the last of the younger baby boomers, as they retire, we have a real shortage of headcount. We're going to want to keep some of the baby boomers around. I like to think I'll be around for a while. I think we're going to have to say, yeah, that guy's great, but he doesn't want to work 60-hour weeks. He wants to work nine months a year and then go to his cottage for the summer. I think we're going to see a lot more flexibility when it comes to not just women in the workforce, but retirees, just people want different lifestyles because more and more you hear people say, my, my, my husband's taking a leave of absence to watch the kid. And then I'm going to, and we're going to do it together or traveling. We, we are a well-off country here in the United States and not just here. And people want options. Oh yeah. And I also think that, I also think they look at the older generation and go, I don't want to end up like that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Worked his his life away.
1: (laughs) Yes. And having the options that have kind of come about again from COVID have highlighted and really proved to people that there is an advantage to trying something different, to trying something new, to maybe putting a, a position remote and just seeing if it works like that. You know, there's no, it's, If it doesn't work okay they go back into the office but at least you've given them the opportunity to structure again the work-life balance another buzzword that everybody's using now and kind of structure their work day that that works for them or the way that they're and there are people who maybe want to work the different hours you know um people are in different walks of life like you you mentioned retirees well you can also mention single people single individuals who maybe have the time. To put in and, and maybe they want to work overtime maybe maybe they they want to prep themselves for the family level you know so understanding where people are is really
0: key right and you know you do see so also these generational sh- shifts like and by the way i can say this because i started my career in the 80s and i had bosses who fought in world war ii and i then i had bosses who were, fought in korea and then Vietnam, guys who fought in World War II, they learned, They brought back from World War II and Korea, kind of a. This is the way things are done. It's top down. I'm the boss. You guys follow. You do exactly what I tell you. Kind of in during my career, I saw kind of a shift from that to. We're doing knowledge work. You can't tell me exactly what to do because I have to apply my knowledge. I have to learn on the job. But also, those guys were. They grew up in a different world. And again, they were a lot. We saw enormous growth in the, our economy, thanks to those guys. But you don't want to work for them, right? Not all of them. And now you look at the way we're working, where it's much more crunchy, chewy, much more, hey, whatever works for you. Uh, we still have to get business results. So, But I think my kids grew up much different than I did. And they expect very different things from work than I did. And I grew up very different than my parents did. So I think we we all can see that. So that means the workforce and, you know, the people in it are going to be very different than the past. Absolutely. Anyway, so I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean Solutions is a nearshore, offshore service provider, and they provide a range of services, including operation, technology, marketing, sales, and business process outsourcing. They work with over 500 U.S. transportation and logistics companies. And what they have is this model where they have satellite offices down in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. And their their approach is real low cost, low risk, low hassle. They have 9,000 employees now. They're one of the fastest growing companies in America. And again, everybody I know seems to be working with them. But if you're not working with them, check them out lean group l-e-a-n group.com and by the way my podcast is edited by someone from lean lean solutions group they're a fantastic company i just did an interview with ryan Mann. i'll put a link to that in the show notes check them out so we talked about a few things we talked about again the bar being higher in food because of the nature of the product we talked about near shoring and uh, how how uh, we're seeing that in in the food biz, but also higher fed regs in the food biz, and because of the Food Safety Modernization Act, we talked about workforce, we talked about women, and uh, next, last thing we want to talk about was alternative fuel vehicles. It always comes up. So, what should I know about alternative fuel vehicles, Alexis?
1: Well, there is a push for EV. We all know that. We all know it's whether it's in our daily lives or when we're looking at supply chain people thinking of new technology and ways that it can improve things such as emissions and sustainability california is is trying to push this 100% of evs um by i think 2036 or something like that and it's going to affect you know the way that we use transportation in a supply chain and logistics level and you know we're not necessarily there yet as far as getting trucks that can can go fully that way um, and make long journeys and and do that kind of thing, but it's 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 spinning. The wheels are spinning, and people are thinking of fuel alternatives where they can.
0: Yep, yep. So before we hit record, we were talking about a few things. So we all know, final mile is good for electric, right? So we can use electric vehicles for final mile. No, no problem. I think we're also seeing electric and i'm going to say also natural natural gas right natural gas or propane for it could be last mile but i think we're seeing a lot in yards right the challenge i think we we all see is and i think even short haul you see um the sprinter bands and stuff can run on other fuels other than diesel the challenge we've had is the 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 long haul and i just recently talked to the guys from propane education research center and they talked a lot about soon there's going to be propane powered big rigs the 18 wheelers and propane is a lot better than diesel in terms of emissions so i think we'll start to see that and you know you have a background in nuclear and you but why don't you talk about what your insights into that and what we because it kind of got pushed off the table like that is not a a potential energy source anymore
1: right it's it's in and you know that boils down to just worry people people worry or or maybe they're it's kind of like that fear of the unknown as someone who did work directly with nuclear power i can say it's not as scary as as people think it is but it's the worry and the fear that that something will happen and again it's an education background in order to train the people Who are able to operate the nuclear power and keep things, you know, at the right set points, then, then there's no worry because everything's good. Everything's, everything's in working order, but just, it's, it's a huge opportunity for, for any, I mean, any resource that needs energy and electricity.
0: So would you use nuclear to create electric energy? Is that what it would be used for?
1: You know, I couldn't say. I can't speak to what what it could do, but I know that it can power an aircraft carrier, um, and that's that's where I worked. I I wish I could apply it somehow. You know, because it it just seems like it could make sense.
0: Well, I think that's so. My understanding is right now we have the electric grid, and the electric grid we all go, oh, good clean electric electricity. But the problem is electricity is created by burning oftentimes fossil fuel, even wood. So coal, we use a lot and we we know hydroelectric too is so the water. So we we create electricity, which we're saying is good. But if we created it by burning oil to do it or gas to do it, is it good? It seems like it's almost like a, a energy laundering. <laughs> and nuclear does not have the same greenhouse gases that we see with natural fuels or with natural, gas, I should say with fossil fuels. And I will also say, I think propane is going to be more of an answer than we've, we've let it be so far. And I think we will also see nuclear, especially for the grids. I mentioned to you before we hit record here in Michigan, our grid is worse than it was when I was a kid. We never lost power when I was a kid. And during the winter, it's cold here in the winter my sister's neighborhood lost power for five days. Five days. Everyone moved to hotels. And they were all driving back and forth. And I I was talking to my brother-in-law, he's an automotive guy. And I was like, hey, that'll be cool. What what happens when you plug your car into that every night?
1: Exactly. <laughs> and
0: he's like, I don't know. He's an engineer. And I I I'm in Michigan. I talk to a lot of people. The electric thing, I'm all for it if it can work, but I don't see it being the total answer. The way we're doing it right now, the battery technology doesn't seem to be all the way there. I can see propane being more of an answer for some of this, especially for trucking. And we just got to keep our nose to the grindstone. And I, I think we also, and this is a little bit of my bias coming in, this is something that the government's saying, you must do this. And- that doesn't mean there's a, that doesn't mean the technology's there. That doesn't mean we have an answer. They just said, you figure it out. Well, We haven't yet. So we have electric vehicles and I'm not against those. I, by the way, I like, I love when electric vehicle drives on the street and I don't hear noise. It drives me crazy when I walk by a street and all the noise of the engines. No, I hate that. So I'm not against electric vehicles, but I'm not also going to jump to the fact that, yeah, this is the whole answer. I think we're going to have to have more answers than what we currently have out there.
1: Creativity. I think creativity goes a long way. And, you know, this does circle back around to the conversation about labor and, and bringing in different minds and, and bringing in the next generation who maybe have, you know, different creative perspectives of figuring out ways to overcome these challenges.
0: Yes, yes. we got to get that innovation. And that's going to start with the education. But again, that's... uh we're 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 a minute away from some of this. So let's wrap this bad boy up. I'm gonna summarize what we talked about, then I want to get your final thoughts. So we talked talking with my friend Alexis, and we're talking about next frontier in food, uh food logistics. And we talked about the Food Safety Modernization Act ever present. The bar is higher in the food biz. Second thing we talked about is near shoring. We are starting to see some of the stuff that was once far overseas moving closer. Might be just moving one country over in Asia, but more likely it's moving to Latin America and Mexico. Next, we talked about workforce. We have to do a better job getting people into our space, not just for um, all the cushy jobs sitting sitting at desk, but also how do we recruit good people into our warehouses and our factories and our our trucking companies? And we have to create better jobs. We also have to get more women into the space. And I think that's an awareness thing. They don't know that this is, by the way, I, I can say this myself. When I started in this, I worked in automotive, and they, people used to say supply chain to me. It started like 10 years after I started working. I never heard what, never knew what it was. <laughs> I was like, well, what, is, what are you talking about? I have no idea what is um, a supply chain. And I worked in one. So we have to do a better job on all that. Awareness, Alternative fuels. We talked about alternative fuels. We're going to need a, alternative fuels for our future. We all know that. We want to reduce those greenhouse gases. I don't think electric, electric cars are going to be, or electric trucks, are going to be the end-all, be-all, but we'll figure something out. Final thoughts, Alexis, Ms. Zell Pleasant.
1: Yes, you wrapped it up in a nice neat bow. You know, like I said, I think all of these topics kind of go – you know, hand in hand in some way. In some way, it's all kind of cyclical the way it goes around. You know, with better education comes more labor, with more understanding of diversity becomes more inclusion, and we bring women into it, and then that solves some some portion of the labor issue. And and it all comes back to having those higher expectations in food that we're thinking up these more creative ways to do things, whether that be nearshoring or implementing these electric vehicles, whatever it is, you know, we're trying to figure out the best for the best, you know?
0: Yep. New solutions needed, (laughs) new solutions, new people, new solutions. Right. So um, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alexis. I like to interview smart, interesting people like you. Who else should I interview? Who else is killing it in the space that you'd like to recommend that I interview?
1: say Katie Date. She worked closely with MIT. I think she's the founder of the MIT Women in Supply Chain Initiative. And she's got a great,
0: oh, nice. great
1: ideas in, in regards to that space. And I think she would be a wonderful person to interview.
0: So she's she's still working over at MIT. No,
1: she actually just joined on at Manifest, the conference, and she's doing some other diversity ah, I love inclusion it. type of things. So she's
0: I met you at I met you at Manifest.
1: Exactly, exactly. So it comes around. It all comes back around somehow.
0: By the way, guys, make sure you get out to Manifest. It's next February in Vegas, and it is a fantastic conference. I was blown away by just how well run it was. There's over 3,000 people were there and it was just, I will say this, the biggest challenge you run into is how much opportunity there is to learn stuff there. So you can walk around all the booths, but also when you look at the panels that are there, you're like, Oh, I want to see this panel at 11 a.m. Oh, damn. I want to go to that one at 11 a.m. I want to go to that one at 11 a.m. I mean, and By the way, I got a chance to do Beyond One of those panels. That was fantastic because you meet everybody. It's a lot of different panels, a lot of different topics. I did some interviews out there. And so did you guys. We Talk a little bit about your podcast over there. Yeah.
1: So we used to have more of like a steady thing going with podcasts. Mostly we do webinars and and things like that, more of like educational pieces. But we do podcasts too. We hosted a couple things to do with our awards while we were at Manifest. And that was really great. But I agree with you. And I'll second on to your point about how great it was for learning, especially for someone who's new in the space It, it was a plethora of knowledge and i can't wait till next year
0: yeah yeah i had a blast out there and then it was just always like one thing to the next to the next and uh yeah and then um they had i think Ludacris was there the first year for the final night and then this last year it was nelly and um i don't know who they're gonna have for next year but i'm sure it'll be a great act and I, I was uh, I was just blown away by the way, how well it was managed out there. So make sure you get to manifest. So anyway, what I'll do, Alec, Alexis, I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a link to food logistics and whatever other links you got me. You have some upcoming um, stuff that you wanted to promote. What was some of those things?
1: yeah so we actually have our own conference type of thing going on this november we are having our second annual women in supply chain forum and that is really a space we're going to have you know panelists and and people talking on all things that have to do with this from diversity to self-advocacy to mentorship katie date is actually going to be our keynote speaker and we also take time while there to celebrate people who have won our women in supply chain award that is also open right now so those th- two things hand in hand to just continue promoting and educating Where is the conference at? It's in Atlanta. So, yeah, it's going to be great and it was great last year, you know, it was our first year and this year I, I already with the lineup, I know it's it's going to be double fold, two fold, million fold. It's going to be great.
0: Is it just women or can guys go too?
1: No, guys come, please, please. All, all, everyone. We, you know, that's an aspect that I think last year was maybe a little bit of misunderstanding. People automatically assume this might be like a women exclusive event, but we need the male aspect too. Um, And I think we have a couple of male speakers this year as well. So it's, it's, it's all encompassing for everyone.
0: You know, it's funny. Um, Sometimes you pay attention to the media too much, and I try to avoid it, (laughs) except for food logistics, of course, and supply-demand, chain Executive. Uh, But the media kind of has this thing where it's like, oh, there's men against women, whereas, like, well, what about, like, a lot of people are married, they have significant others, they have children who are men. I love my daughters. I'm not saying, oh, no, I'm team dude, so (laughs) I I don't want these little girls that I – brought into the world to succeed. And I think also, I said this to you before we hit record, a friend um, of mine called and said, I want to go to work at blank company. And I said, oh yeah, great company. I highly recommend. And then he said, yeah, I like it that they have a female CEO. And I thought, oh, that's not something you would hear. My, like my dad probably wouldn't have wanted that. But I was like, I get what he's saying. Not that, not that women are all better CEOs. That's not what I'm saying. But the whole idea of, different leadership styles. I've said to you before we hit record, I think we all know if you raise kids and just experience life, you'll notice that sometimes there's a very knowledgeable woman who will not speak up. And then some guy will feel like, well, I kind of know this. So I'm going to just speak up because I'm a leader. <laughs> right? And we see that a lot. And I can say this, my master's in education. We also know that you have to kind of make sure You get a classroom where the girls speak up because sometimes they won't. And you can't blame the dudes. They're just doing their thing. But um, I think we need to a little bit of just advocacy is not the right word, but maybe it's just self-awareness. Like if you say, hey, gals, you want to succeed? This is what you need to do. Right. And I like it that guys are welcome. Sounds like the odds are pretty good for them if they want to go down there. (laughs) (laughs) Three single fellas. <laughs> anyway, Atlanta is always a wonderful place for a conference. Absolutely. So thank you so much. What I'll do again, I'll put those links in the show notes. If anyone wants to get to your conference, they can uh, check that out. And uh, when is it? November?
1: November, I should know, 4th and 5th, 5th and 6th, one of those. But you can go to, and it'll be included, www.womeninsupplychainforum.com. It's pretty simple. And you can find a whole breakdown of everything that's going on.
0: Excellent. I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Alexis. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you. I loved it.
0: Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward